I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovic. And this is the Grok Science Show. Coming up on today's program, we'll be joined by Elliot Aronson, who will talk about social psychology. So you want to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000 is coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. Science Show. Well, the theory of cognitive dissonance is likely familiar to those who have spent time learning about social psychology, and the remarkable teaching technique known as the Jigsaw Classroom has equal renown for its groundbreaking influence. Both ideas arose from Elliot Aronson, the renowned social psychologist. Professor Aronson is Professor Emeritus at UC Santa Cruz and has taught at Harvard, University of Minnesota, University of Texas, UC Santa Cruz, and Stanford University, and is the only person in the history of the APA to win all of its major awards. Author of numerous articles and books, his latest memoir, Not By Chance Alone, My Life as a Social psychologist, talks about his wonderful career as a Schulzer psychologist, and we're very happy to welcome you today, Professor Aronson, to the Grok Science Show. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. I've really had a very fascinating career as a, as a social psychologist, and I really have to say that this uh, memoir you've written, Not By Chance Alone, is really a very fascinating read. Well, the memoir is really about my entire life, and the subtitle, My Life as a Social Psychologist, really refers to the fact that my life is social psychology, not because I spend all my time doing it, but because it has had a major impact on my life in the sense that most people understand what psychotherapy is, what clinical psychology is. That That's about repair. Social psychology is about change, so that what a therapist says is something went wrong in your childhood or your adolescence, and if you come to me for a year or two, I might be able to fix it. What social psychology is about is about human interaction and how people influence each other and how a person can have his life changed enormously by the good luck of, of coming into contact with someone who has an enormous influence on him or her. And that's what my life is about. It's, it's like I've been incredibly lucky in the sense that I've had teachers and friends and mentors who really had a major impact on my life. And the title is Not By Chance Alone. It's really that I, there was something inside me that took advantage of all the lucky breaks that I did get. Hmm. You see sort of your life and, of course, your career is helping to try and foster that type of attitude and view, I guess. Yeah. I think that people can change. And, for example, when I invented the Jigsaw Classroom, it was because at the time when the schools in Austin, Texas, where I was living, when, they were, when the schools were desegregated, white kids, black kids, Mexican-American kids were in turmoil and were very hostile and aggressive to each other. And I invented a strategy that got them working together as as a team, very much like a really well-functioning basketball team where they really needed to count on each other 
And in the process of counting on each other, of cooperating with each other, they began to see things in the other that they otherwise wouldn't have seen in a, in a competitive situation, which is what most American classrooms are about. It's about beating the other guy. In this instance, it was about working closely with another guy to their mutual benefit. And within a, six weeks, a lot of the barriers and the suspicion and the hostility between various racial and ethnic groups really broke down. And the kids began to appreciate each other and respect each other in ways that never would have happened in the traditional classroom. Do you see that the uh, jigsaw classroom approach that you've uh, advocated being more widely adopted? Well, it, it, it depends on whether you see the glasses half full or half empty. I'm really pleased that it's been adopted as widely as possible, as, as it has been. I'm disappointed in the fact that it isn't more universally used, like we're reading nowadays. Every 10 years or so, we get a wake-up call. Like 10 years ago, there was Columbine, where kids who had been bullied and taunted and pushed around went over the edge and did that horrendous thing of, of shooting up their school. In recent months, we hear about suicides because of Internet bullying and taunting that's going on. And every time one of those things happens, people get up at arms and they say, gee, what, what can we do about that? Well, it sort of makes me a little bit chagrined because in 1971, that's almost 40 years ago, I invented this technique that really works, that gets people really appreciating each other. People do better in school. They like school better. Absenteeism goes down, and there's, there's less taunting, less bullying, and all of those good things. And so I sometimes think, gee, if, if I were the czar of education, if I had that kind of power, I would train teachers to use the jigsaw, which is very easy to do. I mean, I can train them in one day how to use it, and I would make it universal. And I, and I think a, a great many of, our, of the problems we have in school, both educational and interpersonal, would be enormously reduced. It seems like that model is really a model for one that's rather in society, that a more of a cooperative yeah, and uh, but of course it does begin in school. Or, well, of course it begins in the family, but a major part of their waking hours in school. And my feeling is that if kids learned that kind of cooperation in school, and when they got to be adults, they would not be so suspicious of each other, would not be so prone to try to find weaknesses or faults in one another. So that we, you know, we get a lot of. Um, as we know, in politics and, and in the country as a, as a whole, there's a lot of negativity going on, a lot of polarization where people are angry at each other for one reason or another, or people are suspicious of immigrants. My goodness, this is a country of immigrants. We're all immigrants, and yet those who have been here for 50 or 60 years um, seem to be suspicious of those who have only been here for a few years. It's cooperation meeting people on equal playing field where you're working closely together reduces that kind of suspicion and reduces that kind of hostility. Hmm. The book, your memoir, Not By Chance Alone, you talk about your own experience growing up, Revere, Massachusetts, going to school there and then eventually leaving town and going to college. I wonder if you could talk about your experiences growing up in school. And, and Yeah, I was, a, I was a very shy little kid. 
and I wasn't a terribly good student. And we were the only Jewish family in a working-class town and in our neighborhood, uh, the only Jewish family in a virulently anti-Semitic neighborhood, so that my parents were Orthodox Jews, and I, I had to go to Hebrew school for evenings a week, and the Hebrew school was in a little Jewish enclave on the other side of town, and it was coming back from Hebrew school in the winter when it was dark was always an adventure. There were usually gangs of teenagers who were shouting anti-Semitic slogans at me, and sometimes they would push me around, and every once in a while they would rough me up, and I remember once after getting beaten up, maybe nine years old, and I was sitting on a curbstone feeling really sorry for myself and uh, nursing a bloody nose and a split lip and starting to think, gee, why do these kids hate me so much when they don't even know me? And thinking, why do they hate Jews so much? Are, are people born hating Jews or does somebody teach them to hate Jews? And and wondering if they got to know me better and got to see that I was actually a kind of a, a sweet and generous little boy, would they like me better? And then asking, raising the question, if they got to like me better, would that allow them to hate other Jews less than they now do? And ten years later, when by a series of miracles, when I, because we were very poor, uh, and I wasn't a very good student, when I finally got to college, I learned uh, quite by accident that there was a whole discipline, a whole science called social psychology, which tried to raise questions like that and tried to answer them. And to my great good fortune, I got the training that allowed me, you know, 25 years later, after sitting on that curbstone revere, that allowed me uh, the opportunity and the privilege of finding answers to those questions scientifically. And mentioned helped along the way by a lot of good mentors. Yeah, the, well, my first mentor, my first great mentor was my older brother, who was three or four years older than I and much smarter and much more accomplished. And he was a terrific athlete and a very smart guy. And he taught me how to play baseball. Baseball was a, became a very important part of my life, was the, the one thing that I succeeded in as a teenager. And what, what he taught me was immeasurable because he would hit ground balls to me over and over and over again in the summer. And I love to see the you know, like Little League games now, but the diamonds are a, a little miniature um, Fenway Parks. I grew up near Boston, and they, they're quite beautiful. The playing field, the field that we played on was sort of rough and pebbly, and so the ball was more likely to take a bad hop than not, and I was scared, so I I used to try to feel the ground ball by um, getting my body out of the way and trying to stick my glove out, and my brother taught me over and over again, if at all possible, get your body in front of it, move, move, your, move sideways, get your body in front of it, don't be afraid of it hitting you in the face. That became really important to me, and and he taught me a lot of things. He taught me how to play poker, he taught me, and he helped me decide to try to go to college because my father died when I was 17 years old and we were poor anyway, but that made us even poorer because we were in debt when he died. And my brother was already in college, was working his way through, and the family, the, my aunts and uncles, 
decided that I should quit school and go to work on the assembly line at the Ford Motor Company and help support my mother and sister and help my brother get through college. And I thought that was a good idea because I was not a very good student, and I thought, yeah, what the hell? And my brother would have none of that. He, uh, he said, uh, he told them that they had, there was a family conference. And, that, you know, their motive was that they didn't want to have to support my mother. And so my brother said, uh, no, Elliot's going to go to college. He can get a scholarship. He's going to improve his grades in high school. And they said, well, who's going to support your mother? And my brother said, she can work. And so she could, and she did. And it was very good for her to get out of the house and work. She, had, she hadn't worked since she was married, and, since she got married. And then she, she blossomed with work. And I got a scholarship to Brandeis University. And, it was, uh, and he, so my brother just put me on track for that kind of, uh, without him, I never would have gone to college. When I got to college, I, I wandered quite by accident into a classroom that was being taught by a guy named Abraham Maslow. Now, turns out that Abraham Maslow was, is founding father of humanistic psychology. He was a great man. I didn't know that. I, I, I wandered into that classroom because a girl I was interested in uh, had, had a class, and I just wanted to follow her into her class and sit next to her and maybe hold hands or something. And it was mad. While I'm sitting there holding the girl's hand and not really paying much attention, I suddenly heard Maslow raising some of the very questions that I had raised when I was sitting on that curbstone. Like, what causes prejudice, and can it be changed, and uh, what can one do to change prejudice? And I suddenly realized, my God, you know, there's a whole science that's devoted to these questions. And I, I was majoring in economics at the time, and I quit economics and transferred into psychology. I became a protege of Maslow's. He encouraged me to go on to graduate school, and, and so I did. And it was like a wonderful series of accidents. You also mentioned that you've had some interactions with Timothy Leary and Baba Ram Das. Yeah. Well, how, how does that play into the story? Well, it, it's 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 very interesting. Uh, yeah, Baba Ram Das, who was born Richard Alpert, Dick mm-hmm. Alpert, and I became really close friends. We met one summer uh, when I was getting a master's degree at Wesleyan University, and he was a, an advanced graduate student at Stanford, and he came back to Wesleyan to work with uh, this guy, Dave McClelland, who was my mentor at Wesleyan. And that summer, Dick and I became very close friends, and he encouraged me to move to come to Stanford to continue my graduate training there, and I did, only because Dick had encouraged me to do that. You know, I was very provincial. I, you know, I grew up around Boston. Mm-hmm. I, I like to say, I, I, before that I went to Stanford, I had never been west of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Well, hell, I had never been west of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a big move. <laughs> and and my, so my wife and I, and our, we had a little infant. We had a Volkswagen, and we just piled everything we had into the Volkswagen, including our baby, mm-hmm. and drove across the country to Stanford. And then Dick, uh, he and I were still close friends, and he, at that time, he was so advanced that he, all he had to do was write a dissertation. He was, he hadn't quite gotten his PhD yet, mm-hmm. but he was an acting instructor, and he came to dinner at our house one day and said, you know, this guy Leon Festinger, who's brand new, 
at Stanford. He's the highest paid guy in the department, a youngish guy, but he's brilliant. And yet he's also scary because so, he's kind of rough and uh, angry and very tough on students. And, and he's teaching this seminar, and only like three people have, have signed up for it because I think everybody's afraid of him. And then he turned to me and he said, by the way, are you thinking of signing up for it? And, uh, <laughs> And I didn't want him to think I was a coward or anything, which I was. I was I was scared <laughs> to death of Festinger, but I didn't want Dick to think that. So I said, oh, yeah, I'm really thinking about it. And so I signed up for that course, and it changed my life. Uh, Leon Festinger was a genius and also a very, very difficult person. Sure. But anyway, I've, I've gotten off of your question because Dick, and then Dick and, and I eventually ended up teach, both teaching at Harvard, uh, that was our first job, and Dick sort of took me under his wing. We were both brand-new assistant professors at Harvard in 1959. He had been there a year or two before I came. And then Tim Leary entered the picture, and, and Tim and Dick started what what later uh, we would call uh, the age of Aquarius. When they, uh, <laughs> when they decided, when they started to work with um, uh, psychedelic drugs, and I was, by that time, I was an expert on scientific methodology, uh, on how to do experiments uh, the right way. And Tim and Dick came, to, and they wanted to uh, work with uh, prisoners at the uh, Walpole State Penitentiary and with Divinity School students. <laughs> they wanted to turn them on to these drugs. <laughs> and they had this wonderful excitement, and they were so charged up, they thought, we could empty the prisons because this drug makes people loving and kind and, and honest. And, <laughs> and it was really naive, but at the time, I just loved the optimism uh, that they had. And, of course, that experiment, they couldn't do it right, but it eventually got them into trouble because the university didn't like them uh, turning on <laughs> undergraduates, and they got fired. And then Dick later went to, is, uh, to India mm -hmm. and became a spiritual leader named Baba Ramdas, and he and I remained friends. We still are friends. He, Dick, uh, Baba Ramdas now, I call him Dick, just the same. Mm -hmm. uh, he's still alive, and he had a serious stroke several years ago, but inside he's still the same guy, and I keep telling him, you know, that that he hasn't changed much since I first met him when he was 25 years old, and he gets a kick out of that because <laughs> he veers him as this guru, right? Sure, sure. Now I have a question that's somewhat off-topic, but somewhat on-topic. Did you ever watch the show Lost? I, I watched some of it. Well, you know there's, uh, a, there's a character named Richard Alpert named after him. Oh, oh right, that's true, isn't it? Yep, yep. Uh, yeah. Just thought I'd mention uh. that. <laughs> I don't want to let you go before I ask you about cognitive dissonance, which is really a, a, a theory which is evaded, not just social psychology, but sort of the popular culture as well. Okay. Cognitive dissonance is, is a theory that revolutionized psychology, and it's Leon Festinger's notion, and that's the guy that Dick Alpert got me to work with. And it's, it's a very simple theory. It says if a person has an idea or an attitude uh, or a belief, and he does something, performs some behavior that is antithetical to that belief, he experiences dissonance. The cognition 
I believe, for example, that cigarette smoking causes cancer is dissonant with the fact that I smoke a pack and a half a day. And cognitive dissonance is such that it's, it's a negative drive state like hunger or thirst in the extreme, except it's all in the brain. And it forces you, like with any drive, to try to reduce it. So you try to reduce hunger by eating. You try to reduce dissonance by changing one or both of the cognitions. For example, if I smoke cigarettes and I think cigarette smoking causes cancer, uh, the best way to reduce dissonance is to stop smoking. But if I can't stop smoking or I find it difficult to stop smoking, then I try to convince myself that, oh, the evidence linking cigarettes to smoking to cancer isn't very strong, or if I use a filter tip, uh, that'll, that'll be okay, or, gee, I'd rather live a shorter but more enjoyable life by smoking. So my brain, I, I end up inventing reasons to justify what I'm doing. Now, the, the first experiment that I ever did under the guidance of Leon Festinger once he and I became friends, which, I mean, that's a, a, another beautiful story in the book about how that came about. But once we got to know each other and like each other, I did an experiment that showed that people who go through a lot of turmoil, a lot of hard work, effort, embarrassment in order to gain admission to a group end up liking that group better than people who get into exactly the same group while being required to go through very little effort or embarrassment. And the reason for that is that if you go through hell and high water in order to get into a group, anything that's negative or boring about that group, you downplay and everything in your mind and everything that's wonderful and exciting about that group, you emphasize in your own mind so that within a few hours, the people who went through the severe initiation in order to get into the group think it's a wonderful group, while the people who got in the group fairly easily think, well, it's not so very good, it's kind of boring, I, I don't want to be in here for very long. And the, the differences are immense. And we've used that theory as a way of getting people to conserve energy and water uh, when during a water shortage, take short showers. We, get, we, can get, we use that theory in, in some of the experiments I've done to get sexually active college students to use condoms while lovemaking. Huge differences. You can't do it with pamphlets or television shows or even showing scary pictures of people in the last stages of AIDS, but you can do it by invoking cognitive dissonance. It's a very, very powerful theory. Well, we are certainly out of time now, but Professor Aronson, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show and talking about your new memoir, Not By Chance Alone, My Life as a Social Psychologist. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. It was our pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, fascinating interviews we had today. Always fascinating yeah. on the Grok Science Show. <laughs> I don't know why people don't tune in every week. <laughs> hey, <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, well, this has been the Grok Science Show. I've been uh, your host, Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Govic. And we'll be back in two weeks with more from the world of science and technology. And, and we'll miss you. We will. Write to us. We're on the web. Our web address, www.groks.net. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and you can email us, science at groks.net. Have a great afternoon. 